This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank my patrons. This show is only possible because of people who enjoy my work enough to support me every single month on Patreon.com. So, for those of you who are listening and you enjoy my work, you look forward to a new episode every week and you enjoy the blog as well, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar a month, five dollars a month, you get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer, Timothy McPherson, uh, and we talk about... Christianity and theology and politics or whatever's interesting going on in the world. Also, patrons get to listen in live on Zoom every Wednesday morning and uh, hang out in the chat. So for this week, I have to thank Michael Samael, Nix Ward, and F.V. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this without you. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Levi Walbert to the show yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be on. So we have been talking for a while now about Satanism and theology and all kinds of various things. But before we get into that, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Sure thing. I mean, uh, I mean, the first thing since I'm here is I'm a recent graduate of my master's program, which I've just finished seminary up. And uh, I did a lot of my focus on Satanism as uh, kind of the crux of my thesis work so congratulations you know, uh, tell, tell everyone where you where you were at where uh, you went to seminary sure it's uh in Moravian theological seminary which is uh, a seminary here in uh, pennsylvania yeah we we won't go down a fascinating side quest of who the moravians are but they are a fascinating group Oh, yeah. I, I really, uh, maybe that's another episode, but the Moravians are super interesting, and I, I'm very happy to go out to study under them. They were founded by, uh, we are going down the side quest. Okay. Now they let's were, do it. <laughs> they, were, they were founded by someone with the best fucking name on the planet, Count von Zinzendorf. Am I oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. Zinzendorf was a, was a fascinating figure. Yes, Count von Zinzendorf is the founder of the Moravians, and... I just picture like the net the the Netflix Castlevania series whenever I hear Count von Zinzendorf. He he sounds like a character from Castlevania. Yeah, he was he was a strange guy and I think that kind of accounted for his ability to form I guess, you know, this now what is a new denomination yeah. uh, in the yeah. Moravians. You know, he obviously wasn't the sole founder. It was founded off of a lot of things, but yeah, he, he was this kind of strange guy where he was this you know somewhat noble uh, at the time, aristocrat kind of person, but he was just so obsessed with religion and everyone was going, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, yeah. let's go to parties and stuff. But he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm just going to throw all that away. But he never threw away uh, some of his mannerisms. He came to America with all, you know, uh, the, the colonies and, and, and all that and uh, you know, he, he wouldn't give up his royal attire. He would travel to like islands and stuff in this, not royal, but very yeah. fancy clothing. And it was, uh, 
That's very amazing. interesting guy. Yeah, he was very radical too. Anyway, okay. Oh yeah. End of that side quest. Um, but the Moravians <laughs> are fascinating. I love weird little religious offshoots like that, and we're going to talk about a weird little religious offshoot today. But so I I wanted to have you on to talk about your recent graduate thesis project, which was on Satanism. And but before we get to that, I very rudely interrupted you telling us <laughs> who you are and what you do. Uh, but you're a Buddhist. Yeah, I am. I'm actually uh, ordained in the Buddhist tradition. I'm a minister. Okay. Uh, as, as you, I know it's not a visual podcast, but uh, I always like to clarify that I'm a minister and not a monk, which is why I continue to have my hair. <laughs> oh, got it. Interesting. Nice. Yeah, actually, my denomination is called uh, Jodo Shinshu, which is uh, not very, uh, not a lot of people know about it in America outside of, well, especially a lot of uh, Japanese communities, but it is the largest denomination of Buddhism in all of Japan. But it's hmm. just not as well known in America. Hmm. We're completely non-monistic. It's a, it was a lay movement, uh, and we have you know trained clergy and you know people like that. So people who are somewhat authorities on it. But yeah, we uh, specifically there was a lot of issues at the time in medieval Japan with uh, with monks and uh, monasteries and a lot of corruption. So it kind of came out of that as a Buddhism for the average people. But uh, of course, that's not to uh, talk down on monks. It's, it's just the historical kind of context. Mm, that's interesting. How long have you been a Buddhist? Well, you know, it's kind of one of those things that I, I have a hard time keeping track of when it happened because it was not one sure. of those aha enlightenment, you know, pardon the pun, enlightenment moments <laughs> where I said, oh, I've, I have a conversion story. It was kind of, you know, maybe I, I point around 14 is when I really started getting introduced to Buddhism. I had to watch a documentary for, uh, I was taking art history and, you know, moved to India and Asia. So, you know, give context to what some of the art was about. And uh, it just really got me interested. I was very moved by it. So it was one of those things where I said, well, I'll start one practice and then I'll, I'll try another. And, oh, this is interesting. I'll read this other book. And uh, over time, I guess I looked back and I said, well, I guess I'm a Buddhist now. I'm practicing it. I, I, you know, I believe this kind of stuff. And, you know, I was very, uh, it was at the time I was kind of moving away from Christianity, which is where my origin was kind of roughly culturally, I'll put it that way. I did believe very heavily at some time, but. What, yeah, what tradition? Really, what what tradition were you raised in? Well, it was kind of a, I'll be short with this, it's kind of a funny story I like to tell about, you know, my parents' background, where uh, my parents chose not to uh, baptize me when I was born, because they actually wanted me to choose my tradition, they wanted me to choose my belief, they were kind of very open about that. But uh, eventually, I, I kind of caught on as a younger person, that was the only one not as a member of a church or a group. So I didn't really know what it meant, but I knew I wanted to be part of it, because I wanted to be part of family. Hmm. So my mom is a Catholic and my father is Lutheran. So I had those two choices. And, you know, my mother said, well, you can do either one. And I said, you know, mom, I'm like seven. I don't know what those mean. <laughs> and, uh, my mother being Catholic looks at me and says, Levi, choose, uh, choose Lutheran. It's easier. Yes. She's right. She's she very, is, very and, uh, right. <laughs> she very much remembers having you to school. And the, the idea of having you to school one extra day at that point was absolutely off the table for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was very culturally raised in that. My mother's Italian. Mm-hmm. So it was more, she was a culturally Catholic, you know, my, her, her parents would drop her off at church and go home. You know, <laughs> one of those things where you do it to be a part of the community. So that's, I don't have a huge background in it. I, I did pick up the Bible and start reading kind of uh, at, at like a very young age, which I didn't understand how to read it. So it scared the hell out of me. And, you know, that's kind of the backstory of like, oh, I guess I was kind of 
uh, got very religious yeah. just because I didn't know what I was doing. The Bible will terrify anyone. So I hear a lot of people who have an interest in Satanism. Most of them come from kind of non-religious backgrounds and it meshes with their atheism or from Christian backgrounds because they have some experience in, in uh, Christianity and that segues nicely into using Satan as a religious symbol. I've also encountered a lot of Jews uh, either having an interest in Satanism or becoming Satanists. But as a Buddhist, I, you're what I call as a spooky Buddhist. You're <laughs> <laughs> you're you're that interesting subset of of people who have an interest, kind of a, an academic slash religious interest in Satanism, but as a Buddhist. So what draws you to Satanism? What made you want to study Satanism as a Buddhist? So I think, you know, there's there's a couple background features of, of that story and where I came from that I think has to be addressed. One, you know, I was not raised in a Buddhist uh, culture. I was not raised in a Buddhist household. It's something I found you know, later into my life, or I guess almost midway, you know, I'm only 26. So, uh, you know, almost halfway into my current lifespan, you know, and I'm a white guy. So I'm a convert in that sense. You know, I, I found it, I became very immersed in it. I, I'm very grateful for, you know, especially um, my teacher's Japanese, you know, I got ordained in the Japanese community, given you know, all this, but I'm, I'm never a Japanese Buddhist. I'm a white Buddhist in America practicing a tradition that comes from Japan. And, you know, there's aspects that hold up from that. But, you know, I was raised in a Christian culture. I was raised around this imagery, these stories, this kind of uh, worldview. And like I said, I, I picked up the Bible and started reading it, not understanding that, you know, now that I went through seminary, a lot of it is not meant to be a one-for-one one literal. And exactly, there's a lot of nuance. But, of course, I didn't pick up on that. So, you know, the idea of hell and Satan and demons scared the hell out of me. But I think at the same time, there was something, those passages were so interesting. And the aesthetics that went along with them, especially within kind of the horror culture in America and you know, movies and all this stuff was just, even though it scared me, it was, it was almost one of those uh, uh, fears that generated a kind of a, attraction like the you know it's spooky it's scary oh, oh but i can't step away from it mm -hmm. um and i think as i left that kind of christian fear behind that aesthetic interest was what kind of drew me originally to well this is something that you know i the first of course i encounter uh, church of satan as the thing and then tsc kind of comes along a little bit later you know as i'm kind of growing up and learning more about it and once i kind of learned about that that's where my interest formed and then especially with TST in particular, the fact that it relies so heavily on both imagery and values from the kind of romantic period, that's where it really started to, to gather my interest looking in, you know, of course, Paradise Lost, but the Revolt of Angel, Angels especially, and just um, a lot of this imagery and poetry and kind of you know, philosophy that developed during that time period, uh, the fact that there was something behind it that was more than just the aesthetic uh, was very interesting. And of course, TST, I, I do generally support a lot of the more social and political uh, projects it works on. So that was a lore to learn a little bit more about it. But all of that mixed together into one movement and one kind of organization is what really kind of drew me. I, I want to study this now that I'm studying religion. 
I haven't seen a lot that is taking this seriously from this very religious theological lens. There's a lot of social commentary. So I thought, hey, maybe this is something I can actually explore that's going to have value to people. It's always so interesting to me to hear people's first reactions to Satanism. And I, and I feel like, I don't know, it points to something in people's personalities and backgrounds or something because people almost always have some kind of visceral reaction to it. There is never not a reaction to Satanism. Uh, you know, people people might not have a reaction to, you know, Unitarian Universalists, but there is always a reaction to Satanism. And some people describe what you said, which is kind of intrigue. You know, there is fear, but there is also intrigue and enchantment and kind of this allure to it where it's like, oh, this is really interesting. I want to go deeper. Whereas other people will see it and immediately roll their eyes and see it as cringe or adolescent and just not be able to see anything more than that and and almost seem dogmatically closed to that possibility. You know, I I just saw like a post on Twitter, some so some Catholic trad guy was like, yeah, the only Satanists I've ever met have A, been psychopaths or B, um, you know, complete adolescent edgelords. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, those people do exist, but I, there's that response. And then there's the reaction of just absolute shutdown and fear. Yeah. And. And I am always so fascinated by what is it that causes those reactions? Because those are the three main ones that I encounter of, you know, open curiosity and intrigue, eye rolls, or just total terror. It's it's only those three. Is So was there something about Satanism that meshed in some way with your own Buddhism? Is, is there some intersection there? Is, is, or is there something in your own tradition that made you more uh, open-minded to Satanism? Yeah, sure. I, I think there's a couple things I could talk about. I think when it comes to the initial allure and kind of intrigue, that was also something I had with Buddhism at the at an early start because there were some things that were almost, I guess, especially aesthetically paradoxical that were so fascinating. So for example, um, especially within some of the esoteric traditions or the Tibetan traditions, there are, you know, these bodhisattva who are, I, I describe them like Buddhist saints, the Buddhist to be, they're kind of these, um, you know, enlightened figures. And uh, I don't want to call them deities because that's not, that kind of gives a weird uh, connotation. Yeah. I can talk about that more later, but you know, there are these kind of enlightened figures and, in a lot of these traditions, they have these wrathful forms. And, you know, you look at these, and if you had no idea what Buddhism was or any kind of knowledge of this, I mean, they look like demons. I mean, there's, you know, they have skull necklaces and severed heads, and, you know, they're they're dancing on top of corpses and all this stuff. They're very metal. Yeah, they're really, really cool. But you look at them, and, and the thing is that these represent compassion. These are the destruction of ignorance the destruction of obstacles from, you know, paths uh, which lead to wisdom, compassion, love, care. You know, the, the, but it's represented in these really sometimes brutal forms. And that was so, you know, just, just captivating 
Mm. Uh, and seeing that and this kind of, well, you expect this to be evil, because especially within, I think, really mainstream Christian culture, that is what it's kind of represented. Anything in those forms of imagery, because um, even you see like a, a St. Michael conquering the, the serpent, I think it was St. Michael, uh, mm-hmm. he's still kind of an angelic figure. He's still this beautiful figure and the, the, you know, the Satan or the, uh, you know, uh, serpent is, is this disgusting, horrific figure. But, you know, within at least the Buddhist tradition, it's so interesting seeing some of these figures that are ultimately, ultimately good. Yeah. One of my favorites in the Japanese, uh, Furomiyo or Akala, uh, I think some other, uh, I think that's Tibetan. And, uh, but yeah, uh, Furomiyo, who is this, this figure, he's a wrathful face, he's, he's snarling, his eyes are going different directions, he's holding a sword and a noose. But the whole thing is that he is, uh, the sword cuts down ignorance and the, the noose binds demons and you know, distractions from the path and he is a protector. And, hmm. uh, you know, so it's interesting. I look at Satanism and the fact that Satan becomes a liberator for humanity. And, you know, the even Baphomet is this opposite and joining of unities and kind of this, this aspect of peace between unity, but presented in these forms that are traditionally so, you know, uh, made to be grotesque and evil. Uh, and seeing that duality, is, was, I think, was one thing that drew me in somehow this can look one way but function a whole different way and then once you get into it the looks and the function kind of uh have a unity that you do see these things as beautiful and as good you know the some of the aesthetics and the horror stuff still stays around because it's fun it's cool i mean Mm -hmm. you know uh, i think in our some of our previous discussion we said you know look at catholic imagery the flayed flesh and blood and, oh yeah uh, it's just it, as gory if it's not, some even that's more. some hellraiser shit right there yeah and like well and and i think a lot of religions have precedent for that and my friend john moorhead pointed something out where he he's an evangelical multi-faith guy he does multi-faith conversations and and he's a great friend and and uh we've done some work together but when he describes Satanism to his fellow Christians, one of the things that he says is, well, there's there's precedent for this kind of stuff in the Christian prophets um, in the Old Testament. You know, they they do when it comes to kind of TST's extreme public persona. Well, that's that's very prophetic. You know, that's the yeah. kind of stuff that Ezekiel did. That's the kind of shit that the Old Testament prophets would do where they would almost do like extreme performance art almost in order to convey a deeper profound theological message and he would he said this is something that christians have done as well and this is something that is in our heritage this is something that is within the old testament and so we don't really need to be that frightened of it and i and i love that point <laughs> how he's yeah. he's pointing out how different religions even christianity and judaism have that precedent as well of the extreme outsider being a a voice of transformation and and kind of using that extreme aesthetic to uh to present some deeper theological truth. Along the lines of theology, it sounds counterintuitive to apply the term theology to a non-theistic religion. 
right? It yeah. it sounds that 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 sounds like uh, a contradiction in terms. So, in the context of your project of your thesis, how do you define and expand theology to include Satanism? Yeah, that was one of the the bigger challenges to think about because. Like you said, theology, when we think of theos, it's the word you know, God. Um, and how do you do that with, with something that doesn't affirm that? So one of the points I found, which I kind of held on to and I wanted to build off of, is I think first, um, Paul Tillich, who's a kind of this very famous Christian theologian, uh, in his definition of theos, he said uh, the, you know, the, the rational study of God and divine things. So I think that is a very interesting that it's God and or really divine things. Because, um, you know, how we understand divinity is going to be a very central point. Um, I kind of brought to uh, Buddhism as well. Buddhism is, in some sense, non-theistic. Obviously, Buddhism does not affirm uh, a creator deity. There's no universal omniscient creator deity that's a uh, explicitly rejected within you know the, even some of the earliest buddhist canon uh the question is well then is there no buddhist theology and this kind of starts to raise this interesting question over where are the lines of theology drawn and why are they drawn like that one of the things i argue for is this idea that only uh, christianity and the other abrahamic traditions uh, can do theology actually is kind of this weird restrictive privilege uh that there's this weird thing that, well, Buddhism has, you know, Buddhology or Buddhist studies, but it doesn't have theology because the theology is this kind of wonderful, academic, long tradition that, uh, you know, is you know, mostly uh, done by Christians. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of Islamic theology and uh, uh, Jewish theology, but, you know, Christianity has had a, a very large um, hold on it for thousand, you know, a couple thousand years, well, a couple thousand, two thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of a problem with that because it also holds this idea that it dismisses that anybody else can ask these kinds of questions or do this rigorous discussion on the idea of what are divine things? How do we rationalize them, understand them, integrate them into our life? Uh, so I kind of took a little bit of problem in arguing that theology only has to deal with one kind of idea of God or divinity. So that's kind of a starting point. So non-theistic theology is what are divine things for Satanism? Is it just nothing? Nothing's divine. Or oh, divinity, it's a nice little word. We don't use it for anything. That's not been the case of what I've understood from talking to people and look into it. I think it's, it can be radically different, but I think the, one of the things I kept hitting at, what could be divine, or I think Tillich also uses the term of ultimate concern, that which one cannot live without, which is kind of, one puts their foundation into. Hmm. Uh, and that's kind of a very basic Tillich thing. Uh, I'm sure Tillich scholars can uh, tell me apart on that one, and I, I welcome it. I'll learn from it. The idea of the unknown kept coming up, and this awe of the unknown, this respect for the unknown, uh, and this kind of ability to throw yourself into it and use that as a foundation to overcome existential issues in life. Uh, through the acceptance of, of you know, uh, quite literally agnosticism, uh, you know, that which is unknown, unknowable. Yeah. And I think that was one thing that was very interesting that I, I, I focused on 
and tried to use as the start of what is a maybe uh, ag agnostic theology. Uh, a theology kind of has its own term. I didn't. I started using that and I kind of walked away from it a little bit because that actually does have a kind of connotation within Christianity, especially radical theology. But uh, that's another avenue I actually am, I'm hoping to explore more in the future. So without rambling even further, that's kind of a small overview of my thoughts going into it. Yeah, for me, it is certainly the case that agnosticism becomes transcendent into a form of mysticism and that there's a kind of holy terror in standing before the utter unknowability of the universe. And I wrote an article about this called Satan and the Void. And I also, I, I really like the idea of theology and the idea of religion having to do with what we believe to be the ultimate or what we believe to, to be the ultimate story. And I, I, I just found this quote from uh, Reuben Van Lack's Children of Lucifer, where he says, For the purposes of this book, therefore, I opt for a broader definition of religion. To this end, I adopt the concise formula of Robert Bella, who defined religion as, quote, a set of symbolic forms and acts which relate man to the ultimate conditions of his existence. I tacitly assume, by the way, that Bella really meant to write a set of symbolic forms and acts which relate man to what he perceives to be the ultimate conditions of his existence. Right, so religion being that which connects us to what we believe to be the ultimate uh, conditions of our existence, that is religion. And then yeah. theology being the the study of that the 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 experience and study and formulation of that and i think when we open up the concept of theology and religion in this way then suddenly the world is full of religions suddenly oh, yeah. suddenly this seemingly you know the suddenly this seemingly a religious culture that we live in is teeming <laughs> with with new religious movements and it's teeming with all different kinds of weird religions and you know i had a friend who said that he believes that our modern world is fundamentally atheistic and you know he was kind of opining for this he, he was opining for kind of this former mystical age and I'm skeptical about all of that, but I'm like, nothing can be further from the truth. We are, we are in an age of basically like, you know, a jungle of new religious movements. The satanic temple is one of them, mm -hmm. just one among, you know, untold thousands. We just have a name, you know, we have a name, we have, we're organized, but we're just one of gazillions. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I think one of the aspects of religion that has to be focused on and where I would argue is a defining factor mm. in thinking of it versus mere appearance of a religion is that I don't think that these, when we say beliefs, I don't think that we can stop at simply an intellectual uh, endpoint. I think that for it to really be a religion, one that affects people, there is something 
that is fundamentally felt about it and transformative in the life of the individual. Because hmm. uh, the thing is, I can I can rationalize a lot of beliefs. I can you know think and make arguments for and kind of grasp things intellectually, but when it comes down to it, if that's not affecting my life uh, in a very fundamental way that I think is somewhat beyond my control at, at a certain point, uh, I think that's where the heart of religion goes. Is it transcendent, uh, in other words? Does it, does it create transcendence? Does it generate transcendence of some kind? Yeah, and I think that I, I want to even, I think at, at the ultimate level, transcendence is there, but even, even just the idea that this is something that generates a feeling in a residence, uh, just to, you know, without people who, who don't get to the mystic part of it, just someone who can say, yeah, I just deeply feel this. I Does it move I, the needle <laughs> in some yeah. way? Um, I, I think that, uh, I think I used uh, in terms of religion, um, I, I pulled it up here because uh, your quote reminded me of, and I think it was along very well. I used uh, the, the book Religion in the Making by Alfred North Whitehead, who's one of my favorite philosophers of all time. And uh, I call him a begrudging theologian because he actually didn't want to be. He didn't want to talk about divine things or God or anything like that. And he defines God very differently than the, norm, the normal uh, you know, kind of Christian Abrahamic views. But uh, he, he kind of had to add it to the system to make it work. And I think it's one of the most genius systems out there, but I'm not gonna rattle on about Whitehead. But he does say, um, religion is the force of belief cleansing the inward parts. For this reason, the primary religious virtue is sincerity, a penetrating sincerity. And I think that is a really big key point to what a religion is. And that is what I see in many dedicated Satanists, if I can even say devout Satanists. Um, because like you said, there are people who join because they think it's an edgy joke. They, they like, oh, I get to troll Christians and I get to you know, kind of do that. But from a lot of the ones I've interacted with, you... Uh, some of the other members of ministry council and just those dedicated to, to TST and this, uh, or even just Satanism. I don't even want to limit it to TST. It's just been the ones I've interacted with the most. There is this set, this very deep sincerity to what they're doing. And it's something that I see as a transformative aspect uh, of their lives. I, 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 I think that's what really moved me once I started to actually interact with Satanists. Hmm. You know, it, it, it's always so funny, this disorientation that people experience when they have these preconceived notions about what Satanism is, what Joseph Laycock calls ignorant familiarity, and, mm -hmm. then, and then they interact with me or they read my work, and suddenly they're in new religious territory that seems deeply uncomfortable for them. <laughs> because, I yeah. am, because I am a Satanist to my core. I mean, I'm... I live and breathe this. The tenets are a fundamental part of my life. Embodying the symbol of Satan, the romantic Satan, is just kind of an everyday thing to the point that it is unnoticeable, to the point that it is just so much of a piece that it feels invisible, but really it permeates everything. And I think that that's just so disorienting for for so many people. And I had this experience actually where I mean it's it's a little thing but I I usually wear a, a pentacle with the with the you know the inverted pentacle with the goat head and and so on. I took it off a while. I I've, I've worn it every single day for like 3 years straight, but I I took it off the other day and put it in the drawer and went to you know went about my day. And the feeling of loss was very real like oh this is something that's part of me 
that symbol is part of me and it doesn't feel right for it not to be part of me. Even something as simple as a, as a necklace, even something as simple as that. And I, one of the things that really stood out to me in your thesis is how a lot of things that people might assume are simply edgy or simply kind of humanist talking points or what have you are actually vehicles for transcendence, are actually profoundly uh, meaningful and important and transcendent. And you do a really good job of identifying kind of those hidden things that maybe people wouldn't necessarily think of. What are some of those things? Like you, you point out epistemic humility, you point out social justice activism, you point out uh, several items in the tenets. How are these seemingly edgy slash mundane things actually vehicles for transcendence? Epistemic humility, I think, was one of my big focuses because... Like you said, it's interesting from the outside. This kind of feels like if you talk, oh yeah, really questioning our beliefs and where do we have foundations in our beliefs and you know how how do we know that we're kind of on the right track? You know, this seems like a very you know like you said kind of humanist in the atheistic talking point as you know we need to be rational people. But when you actually get into it, the idea of consistently questioning where you stand in your foundation to understanding reality, to understanding how you function as a person and how you understand the world around you. That is a really religious action to do. I mean, if you think about prayer and especially contemplative prayer, oftentimes it follows a very similar process of this reflection, this breaking down of assumptions, this openness to being wrong, this openness, sometimes more terrifying of being right, but this consistent work of change in understanding that you are a limited person, you're a fallible individual. You know, these things that, you know, I think everyone can probably sit down and think of one thing they were 100% sure about that was wrong. And that was such an incredible, painful experience, foundationally life-changing experience and so on. So the idea of willingly and, you know, sometimes daily, sitting down and questioning your core values and beliefs, yeah, that can lead to a transcendent experience in the sense of just when you reach that idea of, I don't know, I can't really be sure of everything. Of course, you kind of have to find some foundation for your life and where you're going to stand, but this openness simply to say, I don't know, is so powerful. It's an ego and death. Yeah, it can lead to that ego death and say, well, who am I? What, all these things I thought to be me, you know, I can keep breaking down. And I mean, obviously, as a Buddhist, this is a very similar process to a lot of, you know, ritual and a lot of practices that Buddhism talks about in trying to undermine our assumptions about the world and how it functions. So talking about that alone, uh, epistemic humility, it, it, yeah, that, that is a really foundational transformative process for anyone if they take it to that logical end because unfortunately i think sometimes uh, if you don't kind of go in with that attitude which you know uh, happens 
you say, well, I'm only going to really do this kind of uh, humility with things I disagree with. And right. that's where things go wrong. And that's where you get people very, very, uh, you know, assured of themselves and kind of uh, even when they're wrong, they don't want to admit it. And you kind of they, they treat their own position like like a dogmatic religion. And I think that is the opposite of what Satanism really wants to do. And I think it's really interesting that even in my conversations, and my research, like I said, those who are really in this um, are pretty committed to, you know, hey, I think I'm right, but I got to keep checking myself continuously things could change yeah i also i realized that i have not yet included the disclaimer that i was one of your research subjects so i do need to say that that you know i am not i am not you know totally disinterested in this interview (laughs) i was i was one of your interview subjects um but no like everything that you're saying I think really resonates with the Revolt of the Angels. And for people who aren't familiar with Revolt of the Angels, it's primary reading for TST. And it basically ends with a turning inward, with a revelation that, to quote the book, the very end of the book, quote, we were conquered because we failed to understand that victory is a spirit and that it is in ourselves and in ourselves alone that we must attack and destroy Ialdabaoth. Ialdabaoth being the the name for God and God in this context not being the ground of being but kind of the petty tyrant um, that Satan is rebelling against. And so the the message being, you know, we have to overcome the tyrannical petty God within our own hearts. Well, how do we do that? One of the ways we do that is by second-guessing ourselves, by practicing kind of radical epistemic humility and not forming those quick answers. And it, it becomes not just an external fight against injustice, but an internal fight against the you know, tyrannical overlord that we all become. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I'm really glad you brought up the Revolt of the Angels. It is one of my favorite romantic Satanist mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, themes and, and this imagery. But one of the things I also talked about is oftentimes we can't stay at full epistemic humility. That leave, I, I do love the idea. I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who talked about how he was, uh, he was, I think he called himself a militant agnostic. He says, uh, don't believe in, he is a funny little quote, he says, uh, don't believe in anybody else's belief system, but also don't believe in your own belief system. So uh, don't take anyone's BS nor your own. Right. Uh, and that's a great position to take. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, a lot of humor. But it, for most people, that's, that's very difficult. I, I don't think that they can really stand in it. I think sometimes the fear is too much. So I kind of called this the first half of this kind of... Um, hermeneutical system. This is a system of analyzing and understanding the world and, and the tradition itself. Uh, so that's the first step, getting to this, this place of acceptability of unknowledge and, and you know, questioning knowledge. But we also have to have a way to interpret it. So the idea of using the mythic Satan as a symbol in all of these romantic Satanist narratives, I, I think is such an interesting thing because it takes the unknowledge and puts it in the mythic form. Satan as the great discoverer, the one who does doubt, but still continues to persevere on. And it gives the episode humility a vehicle 
for transformation, for action, for, for motivation to keep going, because I can definitely see a point if you don't have that, you just say, I don't know anything, fine. You know, wh what does it matter trying to find knowledge? I don't know. You know, uh, that could be a dangerous thing. I don't think that's what Satanism wants to do. I think that push forward, they continuously search, even if you don't believe there's an endpoint, is so radical and such a motivating. I think that's beautiful. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about Satanism. Hmm. I think even uh, just quickly to add with Buddhism, that's another thing that, that drove me. I think both religious traditions have this acknowledgement of impossibility, but this vow to do it anyway. Hmm. And yeah, and paradoxically, I mean, there's also the fact that, and you pointed this out as well as Joseph Laycock, that the tenets are not, the, the tenets are not argued. They are simply asserted as foundational in an almost transcendent way. It's like we have to have our priors somewhere. <laughs> we have to yeah. we have to establish our priors somewhere. And, you know, for TST Satanists, I guess that would be um in part the tenets and how, you know, one should strive to act with compassion and empathy. Well, the tenet doesn't say why. The tenet doesn't defend that position of why we should do that. It simply says it. It isn't put under the microscope and defended in a scientific or rational sense. Rather, it is ass I, asserted makes it sound, um, ass the word asserted makes it sound um, arbitrary, but I, I don't think it is. It, it is put forward simply as the best way to live. Yeah, it's almost something that feels discovered and not created. Yes, absolutely. Talk about knowledge as a as a important piece of transcendence for Satanists. Yeah, knowledge is such this. Uh, it is amorphic in a certain sense because it's not just information. I think there's also knowledge uh, has to do with wisdom of how to use it. Uh, but again, there's this this continuous searching for knowledge with the notion that well you don't have an endpoint. Knowledge is not going to be, we know everything about this subject because the causes and conditions about the world are going to continuously factor in. Things are changing. How, even how, do, if we have knowledge, how do we use it is now part of that. But yeah, it is this goal to continuously never be settled in, in, in feeling that you know something. And one, I think that can keep, you know, that, that leads back to humility. It can make someone humble. But it also says, well, knowledge is powerful at the same time. You shouldn't shy away from using it when we have enough, um, I'll even use this word, I don't know if it gets you in trouble, faith to use it correctly. Because I think, you know, there's this kind of idea, you, the variables of the universe and any given factor are almost impossibly large. You have to have this point where you say, I think I have enough data yes. to make the choice. And I think, again, the knowledge and kind of wisdom gained to when to do that is also extremely important in the Satanist um, religious kind of quest. But again, I think the, the thing that goes along with knowledge is, is the destruction of ignorance is just equally as key because you can't gain knowledge without destroying ignorance or maybe wisdom too. I think knowledge and wisdom kind of seem to function uh, almost uh, together in Satanism, I, I kind of gather. Definitely. Also, uh, no, yeah. I mean, I mean, I it was funny reading your 
uh, thesis because you pointed out that the way Satanists talk about knowledge, it's always with a capital K. You didn't yes. say that outright, but you included the capital K. And I was like, that's <laughs> true. When Satanists talk about knowledge, and of course I'm generalizing not all Satanists, hashtag not all Satanists, but a lot of Satanists, when they talk about knowledge, it is always with an assumed capital K as a religious pursuit. This is something that is pursued with extraordinary devotion and is really central to the life of a lot of Satanists. And another component that you bring up is the individuation of Satanism, how how so very individualistic it is and you pointed out kind of a paradox where you were talking point talk, talk about that paradox that you pointed out at the beginning of your thesis yeah uh, how do you know have, do you know the one that i'm talking about i have um, an idea just give the, me just uh, where where it's like you know you were talking to to people on ministry council who were insisting that they don't speak for other Satanists. And to an outside, to me, that is not in any way a paradox. That to, that to me is is in no way a paradox. And to hear, you know, uh, Penamu, who's the director of ministry, say, well, I can only speak for my Satanism. Well, someone on the outside might say, what the fuck are you talking about? You're the director <laughs> of ministry. Any, if there's one person in a religious system who is most qualified to talk on behalf of other members of your religion, it will be the quote-unquote director of ministry. But that's not true in, in TST. So there is a paradox there. Talk about that paradox and what you found with the concept of my Satan, my Satanism. Yeah, it's funny. Like you said, it's, it's an apparent paradox, maybe is one of the best ways to say it. Because it, mm. it seems like one, but when you really get into it, there is, it's solvable. It reminded me a lot because I think it's also a, what traditionally people think of as religion. You know, this is a spokesman for the Catholic Church. They are the ones who are going to tell you the doctrine, tell you how it focuses, you know, what it does, and that that's it. But to say I, I'm a I'm a ministry council member, or even uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that you know, Lucian and the you know, co-founders have said the same thing. By the way, I should I should clarify uh, the technical name is ordination council. Ordination council. Thank you. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, you running that kind of thing seems strange because aren't you the guys who are supposed to be defining it, and yeah. you're refusing to define it outside your own experience. Um, it reminds me a lot, I, I think the solution is actually one of one of my professors would always say, but their own religious tradition in the, in the Moravians, they would often say, you know, he was also a um, clergy member of, of the church. And they'd always say, well, what do Moravians believe about this? And he would say, I don't know what Moravians believe. <laughs> I can tell you what the church teaches, but each Moravian is going to have a different interpretation of that. And I think that that is something immediately I think of a lot of Satanists who have dealt with religion, who have come from religious backgrounds, who have that very big struggle of, you know, the church says this, the religion says this, there's no room for personal understanding. It's only this. I, I think that there, a lot of Satanists have, as the Satanic Temple has developed, this is kind of, uh, we don't want to deal with that. Let's nip it, you know, nip it in the bud right away uh, and not try to speak for everyone. So because Satanism is so individualistic, there is this kind of openness to say, 
you know, we were not trying to start hierarchies. We're not trying to force anyone to believe these things. We've come together to say, hey, willingly come and identify yourself and as a member of TST if you believe in these core, you know, the seven tenets. And then from there, people who are coming in are coming in agreeing to uh, some foundation, which I think is important to recognize. Uh, and then from there, it is this open discussion with everyone from every level to continuously develop it. Some Satanists are going to look very different from each other in their beliefs, but they are unified in core belief systems, core ideals. And I think that's where the religion comes together. Uh, it's a collective of individualists who all are willingly uh, coming together to discuss this and to form something. And I think that that openness to say, you know, you don't have to... Uh, uh, you don't have to be. You can be a Satanist and not be a TST member. That's fine. You know, mm -hmm. I've heard that from almost every single person. I think that that's generally the. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, that's. The, I've never heard anyone say you're not a Satanist if you're not TST. That's kind of a oxymoron for what you all stand for. Uh, so the idea that hey, if you are identifying TST, you're openly coming in wanting to work together, uh, and I think that's where it kind of stands for that. It, it is this. Everyone's chipping in and trying to be one group together without forcing each other to believe something. So the idea of debate and constant uh, discussion is also factors in the epistemic humility mm. uh, and that you're kind of doing that process as a group. Uh, so it makes sense why ministers and ordination council members and leaders outside of specific, you know, uh, obviously if there is a campaign going on, there's some more rigid definitions of what the goals are and why they're doing it. But as uh, just practice uh, in everyday life, there's an openness to it. And I think from that openness comes creativity and from that creativity comes new discovery. And I think that's always been a core facet of uh, what TST has tried to form. I, I hope that answered it. Absolutely. I, I, Absolutely. <laughs> no, I love that. And, and, you know, this kind of points to one of the things that I found so helpful about reading your thesis. And I, and I felt the same way reading Joseph Laycock's book, Speak of the Devil, which is, it is so helpful for me personally to kind of read an analysis of what we're doing and who, who we are that kind of brings it all together and i'm like oh yes in my opinion that's it that that at least that is what i am trying to accomplish and that is what my uh, that is what my own satanism looks like and i don't know it's it's very clarifying and very helpful in a lot of ways and that was my experience reading laycock's book and it was also my experience reading your thesis where you know you you kind of describing your findings of things like epistemic humility, um, the various forms of transcendence within kind of hidden in the guise of, you know, of what appears to just be dark aesthetic or humanist talking points or whatever. Incredibly helpful for me as a Satanist to see it reflected back to me in that way. So yeah, that it 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 was incredibly helpful to read, and I think, I I think more stuff like that will be incredibly helpful for other Satanists as well. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because uh, I think going into this, 
I saw doing doing research, I saw a lot of work that was trying to describe Satanism to those outside of Satanism. And while I think partly that is what I had to do as I am talking to a non-Satanist audience. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of it didn't deal with some of the very personal aspects of it that I think is important to know. That I think sometimes you still see it talked about more as a social movement than a religious movement, Yes. which I think is incorrect. I, I think that as time keeps moving forward, my view is that it's continuously getting more religious, more spiritual, even if you will. And I think that is direction, the right direction, because I, I think that social movements without that core to keep people in and motivated do fall apart at the end of the day. And I yeah. don't see that with, with TST. Um, it'll continue to change, obviously, but when it has a, a core group of people dedicated in, in a religious way, it, that, that, that anchors it uh, very deeply. But yeah, my, my whole point is that I'm glad that a Satanist can read what I wrote and gain some insight into their own understanding of their practice. Very much so. Yeah, because that, that's, that, I wanted that to, to a degree. Yeah, very, very, very much so. And I think it was relieving to read it, honestly. There is this sense of relief because I'm in the middle of it. I'm constantly wrestling this stuff. And it's really hard to see the mountain when you're standing on it. I mean, it's really hard to kind of gain perspective or to or to succinctly articulate it in a way that and of course this isn't, you know, it isn't this isn't just me. I'm one of many, 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 many people who are who are kind of working through what does it mean to be a religious Satanist. So this isn't self-aggrandizing in any way. I am I am just one of many people doing this within Satanism, but it was it's incredibly helpful for that to be reflected back to me in kind of this really succinct scholarly way and to just be able to go through it and be like, oh yeah, this this clarifies my own religious life to me in a way that is very helpful. Yeah, so you did a fantastic job with that. That would, so if that was part if that was one of your goals, then you succeeded. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. I, I thank you. Uh, but yeah, it's one of the reasons why I personally love interfaith work, interfaith dialogue, interfaith discussion, uh, scholarship, because I get the same feeling hearing how other traditions and groups are viewing the practices and thoughts I'm doing are so important because you, you can get lost in them. Like you said, you, you're mm -hmm. uh, when you're standing on the mountain, you can't see it. Yep. Uh, whatever you said I, I can't remember but that was the analogy in, in some way uh, it's hard to see yourself from from the outside yep absolutely and well, during this entire conversation i've been thinking of my friend penamu's definition of theology that i find really helpful which is religious scholarship is the study of religion from outside that religion whereas mm -hmm. theology is the study of that religion from within it yeah. And you you are kind of doing both. You're doing religious scholarship, but you're also something of an insider. Maybe I don't know to what degree you identify as a Satanist, but you you seem to identify with some of the imagery and you seem to identify. So so you know, you you you're a bit porous moving between Satanism and Buddhism, it sounds like. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll say that, you know, Buddhism is my central practice. I, you know, there, there's so much to it, especially in Shin Buddhism, which is a form of Pure Land Buddhism. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, there's a lot of metaphysical um, 
speculation I hear to that I don't know if the Satanist would be comfortable doing. You know, there, there is an aspect of, you know, one of the central aspects of, of Shin Buddhism is called Shinjin, uh, often translated as faith, but I think true and trusting is the, the best mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing about it is, I think a lot of the stuff Satanists do is su- super useful. And I think that is such a, a really, it can be an impactful spiritual experience. Maybe the best way I describe it is I, I, I very much am attracted to the aesthetic. I love the mythic aspects of it. I think it's a great way to understand, especially social issues and the kind of spiritual integration with social issues, which I think Buddhism is really only catching up on. I mean, there's a lot of historical analysis, but there's been a big push in the modern era or contemporary era for more Buddhist social movements. Hmm. So, I mean, that's something I long for and I look for in the other religious traditions I study. Uh, You know, maybe the saying romantic Satanist, because I identify with uh, the romantic themes and overarching themes. Uh, I, yeah, that's that's the most I would, I would go. You know, I definitely support TST as an organization, a lot of the stuff they're doing uh, politically. But again, I, I don't think that makes someone necessarily a Satanist, a friend of Satan, for sure. Definitely. Um, well, and I and I didn't bring this up to try to, like, get you to no, pigeonhole no, 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 yourself, no. Um, because I think one of the things that that's helpful about maybe some non-Western religions like Buddhism is that there is a porousness to it and kind of this, this, uh, I mean, maybe I'm completely stereotyping and misunderstanding, but (laughs) in my own personal experience there, there's this ability to enter into other religious spaces and head spaces without necessarily taking it on as a core identity. And I think that's a really valuable skill. Maybe that's just been the Buddhist that I have personally, you know, the Western Buddhist that I've personally encountered. Um, but I think that there is value to that, to that ability to kind of inhabit, you know, to to practice curiosity and inhabit this space, the, the spiritual and theological space of another religion, even for a time, even if you don't necessarily identify as that. Yeah, I, I think the I think the mistake comes with, you know, Western Buddhists and some issues I've seen is this idea that Buddhism is, you know, I call it like open source, that you can yeah. just take out and put in whatever you want, you know, which is not true. Buddhism has a pretty strong doctrinal side. You know, if you disagree with what the Buddha taught, you're not a Buddhist. You're not a Buddhist. Yeah, that's kind of just. The, I mean, I think you, it's fine, and there's no, there's no wrong. Hmm. You know, if you if you are interested in Buddhist teaching, absolutely use it for whatever you want. But, you know, the the word means something. I would say that. At the same time, we do practice a kind of epistemic humility in ourselves. That look, we're not in, enlightened beings. We don't know all this stuff. We, we don't say that you know every other religious tradition is totally wrong. We, there's absolutely wisdom and truth in other religious traditions. We have a path that we think works. And, you know, as Buddhists, we say, hey, we're going to stick to that. I'll enter in, you know, learn what I can. Uh, that's great. You know, the, the, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are said to manifest in many forms. Uh, and I think there's a wonderful teaching within Buddhism, which I think as someone who does a lot of interfaith work, uh, it's called uh, upaya or skillful means that the Buddha taught different people at different stages and in different contexts in different ways. Uh, that it's not one single path that, you know, that these other teachings, whether they not may not be, you know, quote unquote, ultimately true, will lead to ultimate truth. 
in different forms. Uh, you know, the kind of, I think he said, the Buddha opened uh, 8,040 gates, uh, 84,000 gates. You know, that's just a random number. But, you know, the idea is that there are many ways to get there. And different traditions will say, well, this is the best one to get there. You know, so, okay, that, it's a religion. And, you know, I have my thoughts. I have my, you know, ones I stick to, but I can still appreciate. I can still take things. And I can still, even as a Buddhist, learn about Buddhism by examining other traditions and what they're doing. You know, I think that there should be that self-reflection to say, uh, you know, what are they doing right? And what am I missing in my own tradition? And what am I not thinking about? Um, there's a wonderful book called Holy Envy that talks about this phenomenon. Oh, yes. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. I love that book. I think, you know, there's a standoffs, three rules for religious interfaith dialogue. I think it's uh, always ask the adherents of the religion about the religion, not the detractors, which was Obviously. why I contacted yes. you all. Yes. Uh, because I could definitely, a lot of stuff online, if I used, would have gotten a very different <laughs> result. True. Uh, never, it was all. Uh, never compare your best to their worst. So I'm not going to go on Reddit and ask anybody there is identifying or on Twitter or just, you know, hmm. there's a lot of people that I could definitely try. If I wanted to paint TSD badly, I could definitely just do some searching and find some people who, you know, uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and to that point, it's always important for, for me to clarify. We are not perfect. We are, oh, no. we will always, you know, welcome criticism. Like, like, yeah. Always want to put that out there. In no so way I, are we perfect. So I, I will argue, and you can you can deny this all you want. I do go to you as an authority. Oh dear. Only in your experience <laughs> and in your in your actual lived experience and the knowledge I know you've put into it. So I'm not saying people can't disagree with you, but you are you have authorship. You've written a lot, and so that that that's kind of the idea of why I'm going to you all. And people can still disagree with me. Absolutely. They can be their own authority if they want. Yes. Uh, especially they should if they, be. And if they do it well, write it out and I'll take a look at it. I'd love to. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the yep. Holy Envy, which I described, is the third one. Yeah. Holy Envy. Yeah. And well, I th I, we're running out of time here, but this has been a fantastic conversation. Do you have any future plans to keep working on this, this weird intersection of religion, Buddhism, Satanism, etc. I definitely, you know, uh, especially reaching back out to you and some of the other members, I would love to take this thesis, which I did, and put it to a full-length book because mm. there is so much I regret deeply uh, I could not put in because I was limited by both time and page number and kind of topic just in trying to keep it very scholarly. Uh, I would love to do a little bit more, not informal, but, you know, being able to say things and speculate a little bit more freely by, uh, by talking to more people. Um, like, I have a whole chapter I had to cut out on the idea of parody religion and the concept of humor and satire, which I regret cutting out. I have so much more on gender that I would love to talk about with some people. But, yeah, I want to continue that. Um, I think that's going to continue being a little bit more based on Christianity and Satanism and kind of the cultural aspects of it. Buddhism and Satanism, I would love to talk about more. I don't have a lot of future things. I want to write some articles, I think. Uh, maybe that will take something else. But yeah, I, I'm hoping to continue on. And uh, it's been a really fascinating and interesting thing to discover and write on. I've, I've learned so much that I'm having too much fun to want to stop. Yeah, I, I, I find that so refreshing because 
A, it's refreshing to me to see a, a non-Satanist kind of take delight in it. Or, you know, to take, you know, to see someone whose primary religious identity is not Satanism, to kind of take delight in Satanism. And, and that's really the vibe that I get from you is like, oh, this is just so delightful. This is wonderful. And, and that's refreshing for me because that is how I experience it. And of course, you always want someone who, who's not in your religious tradition to at least see the things that you love about it. It doesn't matter if they yeah. identify with it. It doesn't matter. But but you you want people to see why it is meaningful to you. And it means a lot to me when people take the time to try to understand why something is meaningful to me, even if they disagree with it, even if they don't like it, even if they, you know, or, or they don't adhere to it or whatever the case may be. And so it's just incredibly refreshing to have that experience. That's a pretty rare experience for me. I think most, most people just raise an eyebrow. Most people are like, I don't fucking get it. And it's ends at ends there. And I'm always like, you know, you could find out. <laughs> that's that's the that's my approach to everything. You know, when when people are like, I don't understand X. I'm always like, well, there is an answer. You could take the time to find out. And so I it, it's always so refreshing when someone takes the time to listen and to find out why we're into this weird fringe thing and why we take such delight in it. So, yeah, I yeah, mean that means a lot. I'm very happy to hear that, and yeah, I don't know why. I mean, this is just where I fell, you know. Yeah, maybe, absolutely. Maybe it's just my karma, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> it's just cool. <laughs> what can I say? Absolutely. All right. Well, everyone can look forward to more writing from you on Satanism. And do you have any socials? Any social media that you want to direct people to, or are you a wise person who is not very active online? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where I, I really have gotten offline, but I'm probably going to go back online eventually. So not right now, just to be able to publish stuff and get into contact with people okay. since I'm going to be continuing this. But I'll I'll give it to you one day once I have that. Like to, <laughs> I, I, I would like to actually write some stuff so the public can take a look at what I'm actually doing. Yeah, please do. And when you do, send it to me and I'll I'll boost it. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 117. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. It is supported by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And it is a rock candy production. As always, hail Satan. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.